This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to What the Health, an independent approach to your health span. Have you noticed how our healthcare system may not have your best interest in mind? Join Dr. Eckel in this fun and sometimes disturbing exploration of the state of healthcare and what it means for you. Now, here's your host, Dr. Eckel. Well, welcome back, everybody, to What the Health. I have my esteemed colleague and guest, Sarah Payton, back on the show. She's an international speaker and facilitator author has a passion for weaving together neuroscience knowledge and experiences of healing that unify people with their brains and their bodies, which is so heavenly when that happens. Sarah makes interpersonal neurobiology research available for our embodied brains to use in a living at peace with ourselves. Sarah, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I um, I so love talking with you and that component of bringing unity into our experience. It's a great time to be having this discussion when there's so much madness in the world. So I really appreciate it. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> now, when we uh, before we got on today, um, you had mentioned, you know, you have a previous book, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you are now currently working on a new book. And I'm very excited to talk about both of these and how, you know, even in the in the greater sense of ancestral, um, you, you're writing a new book on contracts with ourselves and our nervous system, which I'm so excited to get into. And then previously, and, or I guess in addition, um, you're, you've done a lot of work on ancestral healing as well and family constellation work. Um, I, I, it's so fascinating. And as we mentioned before for our viewers and listeners, you know, this work is really, it's so important to consider in light of, you know, a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of answers for certain conditions. And this is a piece that I've arrived at. I know, Sarah, you have arrived at because you're writing about it as the expert in the world um, around, you know, constellation work and how that, how our ancestry informs what our experience and reality is today. So I guess maybe that might be the the starting spot. Sure. If we jump off right there, yeah. the, the question we can begin with for everybody is, to what extent do you have a sense that your ancestors are standing behind you? Mm. And to what extent do you have a sense that you are supported by them, that you don't have to just run on your own energy and your own fuel in this life, but that you get to lean back into the love that has come before you and that is flowing down to you as the descendant, as the little one in the system, as the receiver. Are you willing? Do you have peace with your ancestors? And are you willing to receive their love? Now, one of the ways to begin to think about this, because it can be surprising for those of us in North America who don't think about ancestors very much. We don't have generally altars to our ancestors as they have in other countries. We don't think about them or hold them in our prayers the way it often happens in other countries, um, unless we've brought that recently from from the heritage that we come from. But um, but if you think of yourself, Greg, if you think of yourself as a as a future ancestor, looking forward 
into time at your children's children's children or your your nieces and nephews children's children's children as you imagine yourself dead let's say looking down to see what's happening I wonder what it's like for you and I invite you to do that. What happens for you when you imagine those future generations? You know, it's uh, it's interesting that I'm not a very visual person, but when you ask me directly like that, it um it looks really good. The future looks really good here. Um you know, for the for the line. Um you, you know, have I, warmth. I, yeah, do you have warmth for those little beings? I do. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's a very rosy colorful picture, you know, living in a heavy state. Uh, you know, with nature, the planet is healthy, uh, the culture is thriving and abundant. Um, there's a lot more love out there. Uh, you know, like that, it is a very warm and rosy picture for sure. And you're a source of love for these little beings who haven't even been born yet. Yeah. So once we step into that, we start to understand, oh, my ancestors actually are a resource Mm. because we often have had, you know, trauma has hit all of our families. So there can be splits between the generations. There can be um, feuds. There can be family members that haven't talked to each other for 50 years. There can be all kinds of splits in our sort of living world of the people we know that we're related to. And when we think of family, it may not conjure images of peace and, and love and delight. But if we, go, if we go past the veil of this lifetime and we start to move into the past, we can, it becomes more and more perceptible, a sense of, 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 uh, of well-wishing for descendants. Hmm. And, and so this is one of the sources of strength and support for us moving into our lives. And for those of us who are dealing with any kind of compromised immune system, every source of support and strength, of course, that comes from outside of ourself becomes hugely important. And so these the ancestors are one source of support. And sometimes, you know, I'm I, sometimes I get really tired and I'm like, oh, my God, I cannot even get out of bed. And yeah. I'm and I'm lying there and I think I can't do it. Ancestors, if you want me to get out of bed, give me a push here. Yeah. <laughs> so just by direct sense. asking. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, have this sense of, of being lifted by something beyond myself that I Ooh. don't have to do it all myself. Which it, yeah. is the trick with that is you have to ask for it. Well, that's, yeah, one of the tricks. And another yeah. of the tricks, as you say, is coming into a sense of their well-wishing for us. Hmm. And part of this is what the exercise that we've done already of me inviting you to look at your descendants and see whether or not you feel warmth for them. Yeah. Because if we feel warmth for our descendants, of course our ancestors would feel warmth for us. Um, but another part of it is is really kind of making peace with um, with the stories, making peace with the history, making peace with the way that the traumas of history have impacted our immune system. There's really amazing research that's been coming out about how our grandparents' lives affect our epigenetic profile. Mm-hmm. So if we have grandparents who lived through the Holocaust, for example, were, were, were targeted in the Holocaust, then so those can be folks who are uh, Jewish, those can be folks who are gypsies, those can be folks who were intellectuals in Germany. All of these three groups were targeted very intensely by the Nazis in the Holocaust. 
their grandchildren carry an epigenetic alert, like a, a hyper reactivity to stress. That's a, just a part of being the grandchild of a grandparent who has had a traumatic experience with history. So that's very amazing research, of course. But then just recently, just this last year, they come out with some beautiful research that shows that we heal epigenetically. When we heal our trauma, when we heal our PTSD, we're yes. actually shifting our epigenetic profile, shifting the way that the, the protein sheath around our DNA is methylated. It changes in response to trauma healing, which is really the best news of the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. We can heal trauma and yeah. it changes even at the smallest. I mean, we're talking, you know, microns of, of size here with with the DNA and our epigenetic sheath. We're, we're talking, you know, microscopic changes that wow. happen. Yeah, that have huge health effects for us. You know, this wasn't even really considered in medicine, yeah. right? Up until yeah. you, now with this research coming out, um, you know, it, it had been talked about. We see more culturally different cultures with ancestor remembrances, the Day mm -hmm. of the Dead, and other cultures do this so well. What? How do we remedy that, this? In, in the United States or North America, you know, what, what do you, why, how did we get here? Why do we have such a disconnect with, with ancestor knowledge or support? Mm. Sometimes I wonder if a piece of this puzzle is connected. This is something I wonder about as well. And I only have speculation. Sure. No, no clear research that shows me how we became disconnected from our ancestors. Sure. But um, one of the things I wonder about is the effect of, um, the Christian church hmm. on our sense of family, because uh, for so many generations, for so many centuries now, the church has, uh, has proposed itself as the father, God as the father. Hmm. So we, we, in our, in our Christian religions, we, we have this sense like that if we turn to our ancestors, we might be denying our God. Hmm that that we need to put god first interesting and I think, yeah that this can change our, that this has changed western culture in terms of us really seeing our lineage another very interesting piece of this is that whoever has won the battles has actually gets to keep the genetic records gets to keep mm. their ancestry records so whoever are the victors and whoever have the money have the time and the space, have the graveyards, have the books right. that allow them to track their family history. And something different is becoming available to us now with genetic testing, right? We get to know more about our ancestors mm. than we've ever known before. We get to do Ancestry.com. You get right. to say, oh, I am 6% Norwegian. <laughs> yes. And, and this was not, I mean, for many of us who came to North America, who immigrated to North America, we immigrated, our families immigrated under difficult circumstances. We were fleeing poverty. We were fleeing famine. There were terrible famines in Eastern Europe and Scandinavia throughout the 1800s that left people literally dying of starvation, not to mention the potato famine in Ireland. All of these families came with nothing. We came without our books. We came without our access to our graveyards. And mm. so we have this other 
factor in North America, which is the immigration factor and the separation from the past and from our families back in whatever the countries of origin were. Mm. And in fact, in the 1800s, they used to believe that homesickness was fatal, that you mm. could die of, uh, of being homesick for the old country. So there wow. was there was a pressure on people not to look back. Hmm. Don't look back or you'll die of heartbreak. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They called it the people that people were diagnosed with fatal homesickness. Wow. Yeah. That um, you know, as a heart-centered being, a practitioner in a Chinese medicine framework, right, where the heart, the emperor, empress, um, there's no disconnect. That that statement is a you know, it does play out like our emperors and empresses, our hearts do uh, drive the boat, right? When you get out of that gray matter and down into heart decision making, um, it, I see that tie in there uh, quite clearly when you say it that way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, so what, uh, so a couple things come up um, on a, well, someone who doesn't know their family lineage, um, maybe is adopted, um, doesn't have that background you don't necessarily have to know the details as a fact is that right you don't need to know any details yeah yeah um and are there ways that you found with working with people to help um make that connection um summon or remember more or ask for that support or help or how to feel it as well i guess there's a the biggies that come up right off the cuff yeah 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 it really depends on where we're working and how much access people have to family stories Mm -hmm. so if people don't have any access to family stories if someone is adopted and doesn't know anything about their mother and father and hasn't done an ancestry.com yeah um uh test then that person still can have a sense, I came from somewhere, I have a birth mother, I have a birth father, and they are resources for me, and their parents are resources for me, and their parents are resources for me. It's a bit like when we've been adopted, then then our sense of being able to draw on family as support gets truncated much as it does in trauma of course but in trauma we often have more stories to go with mm-hmm. so that's one way of working is, is and oftentimes when we're working with folks who know so little about their family history we're often working with this life trauma when we're doing constellation work mm. we're getting a person into a good relationship with themselves and as they come into a good relationship with themselves they can begin to imagine a good relationship a warmth that's flowing even from unknown figures in their immediate past mm. now if we're working with somebody who knows a few stories this is the most common way that we're working and um and oftentimes what will happen is you'll be you'll sit down with somebody and you'll say okay tell me the family story tell me tell me what's what was the most important thing in your family and they'll say oh uh they'll say my a grandfather cheated my grand she cheated my father out of his inheritance he gave it to the second the son of the second marriage and my father was from the first marriage and he never received what he was supposed to receive and there's a terrible bitterness and resentment because the grandfather didn't treat his son correctly. Hmm. And um, 
and and then the child can't have a connection with the grandfather because the grandfather is considered the source of betrayal. So then that person's connection with the roots of strength that come down through the generations is cut off. And oftentimes you'll be working there and you'll, 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 you'll be working, working. The person's like, I hate my grandfather. I hate my grandfather. And then the constellation will come to a certain point. And to be able to imagine this, just imagine that we're sitting in a circle with 20 people. And I say to you, you say you're working. Say you're the one who has a resentment with their grandfather. You've chosen somebody from the circle to be your grandfather. So he's standing there inside the circle. You've chosen somebody to be your father. So he's standing there inside the circle. You've chosen someone to be yourself. So that person is also standing inside the circle. You're getting to look at your family system from outside it instead of having to be in it. So it's like get to have this new wide perspective on what's been happening with the family about the, the family issues. Mm. And, and so we're working, working. I hate my grandfather. I resent my grandfather. All of a sudden you'll say, as people often do, well, you know, my grandfather, you know, his father, he was illegitimate and, um, and, and he was scorned by his town and he had to move away with nothing. And he, he moved away with nothing when he was 14 and he lived on the street and he was living off kitchen scraps from restaurants and trying to wash dishes for money. And all of a sudden there'll be this drop into an understanding of context and an understanding of the consequences of trauma and the way in which they change people mm. and close people's hearts where the person who's working all of a sudden if you were working your heart would open to your grandfather and there would be this sense of connection beyond Mm. just one generation a sense of connection to the ancestors that opens beyond just the loyalty that we have to our parents for example interesting what do you do with uh with trauma in the kind of more with parents, like if parents were the cause of the trauma, um, I'm guessing it's hard for folks to access then even past them. Um, that's the big work that you're doing in the constellation then. That can be huge work in a constellation. In that case, the very first and most important thing is that we begin to create a warm connection between ourselves and the little one that we were who lived through the trauma. So there's, uh, there's the way the brain works is it continually replays traumatic experience. It doesn't have a timestamp on memories that have been difficult. So the way that the brain works is that if we've had traumatic experiences with our parents, we're forever stuck in that traumatic loop of the very worst moments that we had with them. Hmm. And as we do this kind of work where the person who's working gets connected with their younger self and says to them, for example, this was too hard for anybody. I have come back for you. You do not have to live through this again. I'm right here. And I'm imagining that you're experiencing a lot of terror and shock right now that the person who's supposed to be protecting you is in fact harming you. As we do that connecting work between self and self, self and younger self, then one of the things that happens is that instead of us perceiving our childhood as being kind of convergences of traumatic horror with each incident of terrible abuse 
then then if it's not too bad, then the traumas even out as we do this work, and the person starts to be able to perceive their parents' love in mm. a different way. Often with parents who have suffered from addiction, from insanity, from mental imbalance, from tra trauma themselves, they weren't able to be the best parents. But even the parents who aren't able to be the best parents, not always, but often, deeply love their children. Only the love is not able to be felt because when you tune back into the childhood, you're touching the peaks of trauma. Mm. So as you resolve those peaks of trauma, the love starts to be able to travel through and you can perceive your parents in a very different way. Ooh, that's a nice picture. Yeah. 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 So is that, um, now is that what you put in your resonant self, right? That's the title of your first book. Yeah. The first book is your resonant self and it's a guided tour through the brain. Yeah. And Love the brain that. systems and the way that trauma impacts the human brain with lots of guided meditations, exercises. Yes. And on that, um, I've got all your contact info in the show notes and folks, please check out her website. Um, it is listed there. Uh, she's got some really great gifts for, for you on there. Um, it's guided meditations and just uh, Sarah's work is phenomenal. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to take a quick show break here. It is, this is what the health uh, I'm Dr. Greg Eckel. If you're just tuning in, please uh, go to nature cures clinic on the podcast button and listen to this from the very start. Um, we've got a lot of great information for you and for your loved ones and your families. And, you know, really bringing this out during the holiday, I've got Sarah Payton on the line um, and just sharing some amazing stuff that I think will bring tremendous amounts of love into the world uh, and healing on multiple generations. So, um, you know, this stuff is, I, I find so fascinating, um, the constellation work and the familial traumas, uh, you know, we're seeing that, you know, people can be experiencing symptoms today that really aren't even their symptoms, right? Like you had mentioned that traumas in the past generations. Now I think we're up to seven, even 12 generations in a, I think in a worm, they are noticing some, some changes in the genetic structure, 12 generations later from traumas where this work that we're talking about, this constellation work um, can really have profound effects at just lowering the trauma effects in your body, in your brain. And then it just ripples out into your, to your loved ones and your community and our world. So this is super important work. So thank you, Sarah, for bringing oh, it out here. So, much. so your new book, um, and you're talking about, um, what, are you, what are you working on these days? Um, I'm working on, uh, the publisher, W.W. Norton, requested a workbook to go Ooh. with your resonant self. Yes. And the material that I had not included in your resonant self that I just started to develop at the time that your resonant self was in the publishing process was the unconscious contract work, mm. which wasn't included in the original book, but now is being included and woven in throughout this material so that we can start to take a look at the way in which our nervous systems have made agreements with us that limit our life energy and Ooh. limit our health and well-being. Yeah. Well, that is, um, sounds like right on target for me if we're dealing with brain regeneration and healing traumas um, for some of these 
conditions that we have no known um, cure, right? We don't really have much support for folks with neurodegeneration on the nervous system. So tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things that we'll do is when there's, uh, there are two main sources of these nervous system contracts. And one of them is trauma. So there's a moment of trauma and our brain tries to figure out what we did to contribute to the traumatic experience and never do it again. So, for example, if somebody has a, if somebody has hurt us who has a particular aftershave, then our brain will be like, never go near somebody with that aftershave again. Mm. Or this will often be true for um, if you've experienced harm from somebody who's been drinking and smells like alcohol, then later you'll smell somebody who smells like alcohol and your system will be on an unconscious alarm that's like, I have to be really alert because people who smell like this can be very dangerous. And and we don't have much conscious choice in it. Our nervous system goes into reactivity. The same thing can be true for loud voices, for example. Uh, if somebody in our family of origin was scary with a loud voice and physically dangerous, then our nervous system is going to go into lockdown and freeze mode in response to somebody having an anger cue. And so there are all kinds of these things that we're constantly shutting ourselves down in response to becoming frozen, becoming hypervigilant in response to that we can begin to to work with, with the trauma work, with the unconscious contract work. And and, uh, the other place that the unconscious contracts come from is from very early maybe even epigenetic, but definitely very early experiences with our mothers or with our Mm. mothering people. It doesn't have to be a woman. If there's a man or in any gendered person who is in deep relationship with a baby, the baby integrates how much life energy and how much facial expression of different kinds of emotion the baby can express. This is the research, beautiful research, of Beatrice Beebe and her team in New York City Mm. who spent three decades looking at videos of mothers and babies face to face looking and you could do it actually with our video interaction right now you could look at the micro expressions between our faces but Mm -hmm. it's very interesting with mothers and babies by the time a baby is four months old the baby will only make the facial expressions that the mother can easily reflect So if the baby's angry and the mother makes a blank face or a puzzled face instead of a, of course you're angry face, (laughs) then the baby loses the anger emotion altogether from their facial expression vocabulary. Wow. And because we're hardwired between emotional expression and facial expression, if we stop doing facial expressions of anger, we shut down our anger circuit altogether. And the anger Mm. circuit is immensely important for health and well-being. It's important for the protection of life energy. If we don't have access to our anger, there's an entire swath of life energy that we have shut down. (laughs) For example, same same thing is true with sadness or with fear or with joy. We can shut down joy. Mothers who are avoidantly attached often diminish their baby's joy. The baby smiles big. The mom smiles smaller. Hmm. So the baby learns, oh, I need to be smaller so that I can be in the relational space with my mother where her face is in response to me. Wow. Yeah. 
little human babies can't do what their mothers can't reflect because mm. it's like a, it's like being tased when you make a bigger facial expression than the person you're with can reflect. Like if I started to cry right now and you change the subject, then I'd be like, oh, crying's not okay. I have to stop crying. No more yeah. crying with Greg, right? Sure. And that's yeah. us as adults. That's not even us as babies. So by the time we're four months old, before we can even talk, we've already started to limit our life energy. Mm. And this is one of the things that the unconscious contract work can take us into, where people just have these enormous shifts. So wow. when we feel safe and we feel like we matter, our immune system is doing its very best thing. Our immune system is, is in, it's like creating the cells that fight cancer and fight viruses. It's doing really good stuff. But when we have a sense that we are not safe and we don't matter, our immune system shifts gears and it starts producing the cells that fight infection. So mm. like it's, it's worried about knife wounds and being hit and repairing tissue. It's not interested in, in really doing the detailed work of keeping the immune system healthy and functioning in terms of invaders from cancer and mutations. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's pretty profound. So is there, are there new therapies coming out or that's what you're writing about in your book around how to uncover these and how to relearn that full range of emotion? Yes. Yes. We want to start, we want to use our unconscious contract process. If it's something that works for us, yeah. to be able to expand our sense of what's possible. Wow. So if you have a sense that you never cry, you never allow yourself to be sad so that people can see your sadness. Then there's a contract. And it might be, I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self. I figured out that the contract language works very well for our nervous systems. It's got a formality. And our nervous systems are like, yes, I like this formality. This is true. I, Sarah, solemnly swear to my essential self that I will not reveal that I am sad in order to keep from being a burden. Mm. On my, in order to keep from burdening my mother, in order to keep from burdening people so that they will be able to be happy and I will not make them sad, mm. no matter the cost to myself. Well, And if you already know that you have the contract, it's not an unconscious contract. It's a conscious contract. Sure. So, so, <laughs> this, <laughs> this work is dedicated to helping you find the unconscious parts of it. Yes. Yeah. In order to, what's the relational need? We often think, oh, I have, I have a need not to cry so that I won't be uncomfortable. But if we start to think about ourselves in relationship, take our relationships seriously, then something different starts to happen. We start to see relational needs. I don't want to cry because I don't want other people to shut down. I want them to stay connected to me. I want to have connection. Hmm. And my body has lived experience that if I cry, my mom's going to turn away. And so, and so if we begin to name this, then people make all kinds of changes. I had this one lady who was, uh, always hypervigilant in service of her father, who'd been a pilot in uh, in World War II for another country. And she, when she let go of her contract to always be vigilant, she was standing down with me in an auditorium filled with people. She looked at this auditorium and she said, oh my God, 
there are faces out there. Because the vagus nerve, you may be familiar with Stephen Porges and his work with the vagus nerve. When we're in hypervigilance, we can't see people's faces, really. We can't see the nuances of their facial expressions. We're just looking for danger. <laughs> and our eyes find it really difficult to focus on the human face when we're in a vigilant state. So this, this woman let go of this vow and then it's like, wow, I can see everybody. She went and got a chair and sat behind me on the stage so that she could just sit there for an hour and look at people's faces. It was like <laughs> she was drinking in. Social engagement, as Stephen Porges calls it. She was drinking in. What's it like to really be able to see people? Mm. That happens so often when people let go of these contracts. They start to see. There's a new relaxation that comes, which, of course, is hugely supportive for immune systems. Wow. Yeah, that is... Um... This is super profound on that on that level of healing to get the nervous system into parasympathetic rest and regenerate. Yeah. Uh, your immune system goes through the roof. Uh, all of the signals are flowing. I'm guessing you can get into flow states much more common, oh, much yeah. more quickly. Uh, those aspects. I love that that visual of drinking in. I've been mm-hmm. um, I've been saying that in my life lately of just you know, the richness of life and the visions of colors and flowers and scenery and people. Mm. Uh, it's just that component of just, oh, so rich. Our eyes come alive yeah. along with our immune systems yeah. when we move out of the danger states. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so many people are maybe unconsciously carrying these things around because they are surviving. They made it to this point in time but don't even have the time or the energy to, to even understand that I made this contract when I was a child or it could have been a, even from previous generations. Yes. Can yeah, I get past yeah, that way? Yeah, of course. Because uh, like we mentioned with the Holocaust, with the kids who were, um, who were in their mother's wombs in 9-11, for example. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Native, we've been doing some epigenetic research with Native American uh, descendants mm. and seeing the way that trauma, historical trauma, puts people into a hypervigilant state that's so profound that it makes changes to the way their DNA is uh, covered or uncovered by their epigenetic sheath, by the protein sheath. Wow. And, and, and these changes that we do with trauma healing allow these, uh, these PTSD changes uh, that make people hypervigilant to be reversed. Hmm. So we're able to do marvelous things now to change ourselves even at the very most, you know, sm- smallest levels of ourselves. So many beautiful wow. changes happen with healing. Could you say um, if you're not having so emotions are a tough thing for a lot of folks, right? Maybe an understatement by Dr. Eckel here. Um, <laughs> on uh, if somebody isn't having, um, you know, like saying I've I've heard a lot of folks say lately, like I want to experience more joy. I don't have a lot of joy in my oh, life. Yeah. Um, or on the flip side of that, um, I never I never can cry. Um, I don't have tears or, you know, uh, I don't experience grief or I shut down around grief. Are those some clues to say, hey, maybe you've got some unconscious contracts on here? Absolutely. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the most common contracts that people make about joy is that it should that it should not be displayed or even strayed into in order to save us from humiliation and ridicule. When people have been teased or made fun of or have had the experience of uh, their uh, of um, just how vulnerable joy is a very vulnerable state. It's very vulnerable to relational connection. It's very vulnerable to what the other person can do in the relationship. If we're our own in nature, joy is easy for many people. They're like, oh, it's so beautiful. They experience this joy. But as soon as they're in a relationship, their capacity to feel joy and to express joy really changes because joy is dependent on both people doing their contact work. Hmm. Both people need to begin to release the breaks that they have on their own life energy in order to be able to experience more and more joy in their lives. We don't often think of joy as being profoundly dyadic, but it is. It's profoundly a paired emotion as long as, as soon as we're with other people. Interesting. So how do you... In so that would be, I'm guessing, primary relationship, but also in community relation yeah, as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so how do you get everybody on the same page with that? Like, well, let's all just have more joy. <laughs> let's all just have more joy. <laughs> What's really fun is to do. I've done some workshops where we're focused on play or focused on joy, and to watch the room's capacity to hold laughter with ease, mm. to move easily in and out of laughter. I mean, one of the things that'll happen with laughter is it'll hijack a group because it'll go outside the group's window of welcome, you know, their capacity to hold the laughter. People start to laugh and it can't be, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's disruptive. Mm. Instead of being like a gentle, you know, rise and fall of ocean waves that take us, take us, uh, uh, float us gently through a workshop. So it's very fun with, with all of the workshops that are focused on uh, one of these circuits, you get a tremendous enlivenment that comes as people release their contracts and are all working together to release mm. their contracts. It's fun and spectacular. In a way. I'm sure. Yeah. How many folks, when you're talking about a group setting, how many, how many people is that when you're working with people? Oh, it's 20 to 120 usually. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just any size. So no limit. Yeah. No limit. I was doing one on sexuality in Great Britain. It was such a funny room. It was a room filled with portraits of, of British royalty. So I sat down in front of the one that was <laughs> Queen Elizabeth behind me. We we're working on sexuality and, and, but, but the, by the end of the third day, because the sexuality circuit, it's one of the circuits of life energy that's so important for our health and well-being. It's the circuit that carries us from being children to being adults. That's mm. what the sexuality circuit does. It's about the emergence of self. And in our world that's so ruled by Madison Avenue, it's almost like you have to be under 30 to be sexual. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's not okay. But uh, here I am in a room with people who are ranging in age from 30 to 70 or 80 years old. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. this is mine. This <laughs> belongs to me. Nobody can take this away from me. This is my birthright. I am an emergent being. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's just so much joy and beauty. And, oh, and lovely. Of, yeah. In each of these experiences of people wow. letting go of these contracts. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is there um, is there some signal that one gets when the con- I guess it's just an increase of energy and vibration? Is that when, what people uh, are experiencing when they when they when they release a contract? What yeah. happens? Yeah. yeah, there's like there's a sense of new fluidity and freedom, and it's like we are having to live less within whatever story it is that mm. was limiting. Like people can have stories that they're always sad. I am a sad sack. I am an Eeyore. Mm-hmm. I am always depressed. And then they start to go over the contracts and they're like, oh, that was just like a way to describe a burden that I was carrying. It wasn't a true thing about my personality. Or people can think I'm always angry, but it's just that no one has ever acknowledged and accompanied the anger. As you said in the beginning of this particular part of our conversation, you said people can have a tough time with emotion. Mm-hmm. And this is because, as we see from Beatrice Beebe's research, we are dependent on one another for emotional expression. We're always measuring am I being too much? Am I overwhelmed, Greg? Am I being too quiet? Am I not saying enough? Am mm-hmm. I hitting the right balance? Have I been too sad? Am I straying into my anger? Have I gotten on my soapbox? Am I not listening? It's like we're in a constant Mm -hmm. measurement that we don't even know about where we're paying attention to the effect that we have on each other. Hmm. And and so as we do this work, then then there's openings into fluidity and and a dropping more deeply into relational space. Because if we really enter that space where our voice matters and where we're really safe, then our eyes blossom, our ears blossom, our immune system blossoms. We start to really run on oxygen instead of Mm. running on cortisol. And we become more and more and more relational the deeper we go into the releasing of these contracts. The contracts kind of keep us suspended out of relationship in relationship with the past mm. and in relationship with who, who was it okay to be when Sarah was three years old. That's a different experience. She was living in her parents' household. She was enormously dependent on them and their nerve systems. And then if she carries those rules into her relationship now with Greg, she's going to have to be much smaller than if she lets go of those contracts and she gets to be what's what's here now. Mm. Is this making sense? Yes. Yeah. And I'm hoping to the, to our listeners and viewers as well. So let's explore that a little bit more. So on, I'm curious if, uh, so you're in, let's say just primary relationship, right? Okay. So rather than community and you've got one partner that is into exploring, checking out, do I have unconscious contracts? And the other one is says, you know, I feel okay where I'm at, or I, I'm not, I'm not willing to look at it, or I don't want to look at it, or I don't have time to, whatever the reason. Um, There's an imbalance, right? But you're in relation where one's kind of in expansion, looking to increase energy uh, and connect, other one is not. Is that possible to do that work in a relationship where, you know, you're not limited by a partner um, that's not open to doing the work at the current moment for whatever reason? This can go a number of different ways, depending yeah. on how, how, depending on sort of where people are in their, in their emergence, in their unfolding. 
So one possibility would be that a par- one partner would grow away from the other partner. Sure. That one partner would say, well, I'm really interested in, you know, uh, the ways in which you're sitting inside your unconscious contracts leave me alone too much. I'm too bored. I really want a deeper connection. And they <sighs> m- might go into the world and that co- and that relationship might might dissolve. But another possibility is that um, uh, the partner who's doing the work becomes more relational. And in that relationality, the partner who's not doing the work is also carried along mm. because you sort of can't help it. Yeah. The, the more liveliness and warmth and affection is brought to the interpersonal space, the more even a person who's not doing the work is invited into their ventral vagal, into their social engagement, into, mm. as you said, the parasympathetic, the rest and what did you say? Rest, rest and, and regenerate. Rest and regenerate. Yes. So both partners can benefit even if one partner is only doing the work. Awesome. So then I taking it one step further into community, I'm guessing that's why we feel, um, you know, different cities, towns have different vibes, you know, if we get a little woo woo on it, um, which I love to do, but, um, you know, there's some, maybe some unconscious agreements of, look, this is acceptable here in our community to fully express self or, Um, have some vulnerability that's still safe to be that way. Right. We'll see these cultural differences across the United States, for example. So if you're in New York City, it's culturally okay to talk louder, interrupt more, and talk Mm. faster with more obvious engagement, aggression, anger. All Mm. that is culturally acceptable in an entirely different way in New York City than if you go to Seattle, Washington, all of a sudden, you've got this tremendous heritage of of the Scandinavians. There are there are so many Scandinavians <laughs> that immigrated to Seattle. They've left a stamp on the Pacific Northwest character in some ways, and that's a much quieter. You know what what your culturally appropriate standard of behavior mm. is is you cannot talk that loud, you cannot talk that fast, you cannot interrupt that much. And you must throttle back on the aggression, you know, in order to have a, in order to have that sense of cultural belonging and acceptance. Mm -hmm. So we've got that in, you know, just two cities I'm pulling up randomly. Sure. Yeah. Right, right, right. Makes a good point. Yeah. 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 Now all over the United States, different cities will have different cultures depending on what's the, what's, how they've been fed. What's the, what's the ancestral heritage of the city. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating stuff right there. So this book, when is the book coming out? Well, it's due into to Norton on June 1st. Okay. So I'm going on writing retreat tomorrow to see if I can get a couple of chapters knocked out. Yeah. Lovely. I'm really glad we got you before you went into your retreat. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, wow. So on, um, Let's talk about this connection of the nervous system. I mean, how did you arrive at these unconscious contracts with nervous system in particular? Is that off of the Porges research of the vagus nerve and that wandering nerve and how it influences so much of our health and our bodies? Or, you know, how, what's the nervous system connection here? Yeah, the, very much Porges. Yeah. Yes. 
uh, um, Porges and also a fellow named Jak Panksepp, hmm. who uh, was an he was a American uh, scientist of emotion, who hmm. was a fellow who discovered that rats laugh when you tickle them, that they make a supersonic sound that's laughter. If you you can he has some videos. There's some videos on YouTube. You'll see a researcher put their hand in a cage with a rat, and they they tickle the rat, and the rat is laughing. And then the rat runs away, and then that comes back around and puts, puts for a little body more. right there for, for more tickling and more laughter. Wow. And our dogs are doing this when they're, when they're playing and they're panting. They're mm -hmm. laughing. So if you're a dog owner and you, have your, you get your dog starting to pant when he's playing with a toy or she's playing with a toy, then you, you're, you've got your dog laughing. It's oh, that's really beautiful. No. Yeah. It's the same places in our brains that are responding when we laugh as these little mammals are responding when they laugh, mm. we are much more mammalian than we know. <laughs> and a part of what he discovered was we have different circuits for the different emotions. So this comes back to our work with Beatrice Beebe again, and this sense of uh, that we have a sad, that we'll have a shared vocabulary for sadness, or we'll have a shared vocabulary for fear or for anger. And each of these different emotions like, has a different bus line that's running from our body through our brainstem to our brain, different areas of the brain that are involved in these different emotions. So sadness is an entirely different bus line than mm. anger is, for example, which is why I'm saying if we cut out anger, we're cutting off an entire swath of life energy. We're mm. keeping energy and information from traveling in a particular part of our brain. It's like we're not using it. And we're not being our full selves if we're not using using it. So we've got so we've got the nervous system both on Panksep in terms of vigilance, fight, flight, alarmed aloneness, and we've got Panksep's work with the circuits. And both of these things, all of the places that are distinct and differentiated systems in the human body can have contracts. Mm. It's like our amygdala is leveraging our bodies to try to make us safe. So it makes, it's like it's making agreements with any differentiated system in our body to say, shut down, do not act or overact or always be vigilant. Hmm. These are agreements that we've made based on our relational knowledge of one another and based on trauma that then as we start to be able to touch them, they start to dissolve because they're static and they're stuck in place because we haven't ever made them conscious before. And the act of making things conscious makes them change. Mm. Wow. So on that note, um, we're coming down to the last couple minutes of our show. Uh, awesome discussion here, Sarah. With, is there, how does somebody just kind of cut to the chase? Like, okay, I know I have a bunch of unconscious. I, I think I have unconscious. How do I discover this? Like, so what's the process? What do, yeah. what do people do? 
well, at this point, because the book hasn't been published yet. Yes, got to wait. Well, you can go. I've been doing YouTubes and I've been doing webinars. Okay. Covering this material and working and doing demos with people. So it's very possible to just write to help at empathybrain.com and say, I want the unconscious contract links. Please send them to me so that I can get them from the store. And there we go. That's a very easy way to do it. Awesome. Thank you. That's great because this is, you know, I think some folks might have some time here at the end of the year. This is a great time, I think, to do that introspection and really um, detective work for yourselves because you you may have some time and, you know, let's make it fruitful because this is the time we plant the seeds for then when your book comes out in June, you know, coming out <laughs> in the summertime, right? Like that's the the big energy rise. We can just follow that tide of energy of really doing some of that deep work now. So yeah. that's phenomenal. Um, say that what, uh, link one more time. So it's health, help, help. help at empathybrain.com. Send help. us an email and we'll help you out. <laughs> Lovely. That's a great offer. You know, everybody tuning in, um, thank you. This is What the Hell. Please share this with your friends and family members. This is essential information for all families out there. This is how we do change the world right here is each of us doing our own work. Really, this is so gratifying to raise energy Get your immune system, your body's functioning in an optimal state, your brains, your hearts, uh, and communities. I mean, as Sarah just so nicely put, it really is, it's a, there are these contracts that we make for ourselves, but then in relation to each other. So it's a, what a gift, what a gift. Any closing remarks that you'd like our listeners, viewers to have uh, after our discussion today? Oh, just that the most important thing is self-warmth, that the most important thing, if you're starting to notice that you have contracts, the thing that makes it softest and easiest to make it through life is to turn to ourselves with warmth and affection and say, well, of course I have contracts. (laughs) Of course I decided it wasn't a good idea to cry. Of course I decided I needed to throttle back my life energy. Just to begin to have that warmth for ourselves is completely, radically life-changing. Lovely. Sarah, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. I love our discussions. Um, You know, what a, what, again, what a gift for folks and for me, I I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, So everybody, thank you for tuning in. What the health, Dr. Greg Eckel, naturecuresclinic.com. You can go to podcast. Please subscribe to these. Uh, We're out every Tuesday from two to three Pacific coast time. Uh, Would love to have you along. Please share it with your friends and family. Write us a review if you're so inclined so we can help get this information out to everybody. Thanks for coming aboard.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.